everyone, Corey here along with my husband, Matlock, and we are gearing up to do this week's weekly recap. So we're going through the Bible in a year, and this week we were assigned to read Deuteronomy chapter 15 to Joshua chapter 8. And I just want to say, if you can hear noises in the background, I apologize. We have some construction going on in the front of our studio, but we wanted to tape the recap anyway. We didn't really fall behind in our reading. So, so here we are. But Deuteronomy chapter 15 to Joshua chapter 8. Let's do it. Lots of stuff to cover. Really interesting things as well. So let's jump right in. Deuteronomy chapter 15. So this is talking about the, the Sabbath year again from Leviticus chapter 25. But now, now more is added to it. So it's not just every seven years the fields get rest, but also every seven years debts are canceled in Israel. Uh, so the fields get rest and so do the people. Whoever's in debt, that debt gets forgiven. Now, there's also a caveat here uh, that the people are obligated to still give generously, even it, like with, with money, even if the seventh year is near. Mm. So essentially, this is telling them ignoring need is sin. So if someone comes to you and they need to borrow money, don't withhold your money for them because there's only two years left before you know they're right. Be. So you might be losing money, but it's the right thing to do. Right. All right. Uh, also, slaves go free on the, in the seventh year. Israelite slaves mm. go free. It's their chance to, to walk away or they can choose to stay uh, as a slave as well. We can read about that in Exodus chapter 21 and Leviticus chapter 25 to go along here with Deuteronomy 15. Okay, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, we've got uh, three different feasts and festivals of Israel that are explained to us. We've got the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, we have very specific rules for how not to worship God. We read in Leviticus how to worship God, right? We've been getting it, but this is how not to worship God. Mainly uh, idols, uh, pagan symbols, blemished sacrifices. Um, we know that Levitical priests were to act as judges to oversee court cases. So we get a little bit of an insight into the legal system of Israel here where the Levitical priests are their judges. They don't have to appoint new ones. Um, we also have in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Something that's going to become very important as we move into the time period of the kings of Israel and Judah, we have rules for kings of Israel. And this boils down, all of these rules boil down to where they're putting their trust. Are they putting their trust in God for real? Right. And the, the test for that is they're not allowed to multiply horses, which would be for warfare. So mm -hmm. they need to depend on God for success in battle, not their great military yeah. might. Um, they're mm -hmm. not supposed to multiply wives, uh, which would lead their hearts astray. And multiplying wives wasn't just lust of the flesh. That's not what's going on. When you were a king, you solidified um, allies nationed allies with covenants of marriage. Right. Uh, so if you were multiplying your political alliances, you were depending and trusting on those political allies rather than trusting God for peace and security and success in warfare and economics. 
They also were not to multiply silver and gold, therefore depending on their wealth over God. They were supposed to write a copy of God's law and read it their entire life. I don't know what the last part, but Solomon pretty much broke every single stipulation that you just mentioned. I mean, it's probably fair to say that he also did not write a copy of the law and read it his whole life because he did ignore yeah. all of these so harshly, but maybe he did. Maybe he just decided not to listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. That's what hard and hard to do. <laughs> yes. Not great. Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 18. So, this is all about the the portions or the shares of the offerings that went to the priests and Levites, kind of as their payment uh, for their work. We have occult practices being outlawed here in Deuteronomy 18. So things like child sacrifice, divination, sorcery, the interpreting of omens, witchcraft, spells, mediums, and then spiritists or necromancy or necromancers. Uh, all of those were outlawed as evil and unacceptable. We're also told in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that God's going to rise up a prophet to speak to Israel when they need it. Uh, and also, if that claimed prophet prophesies falsely even once, they're not God's prophet. Right. And this is the the prophet in, in the New Testament, like John, I think I think it's the first chapter of John. Mm-hmm. Um where everyone's like, are you the prophet? And he's mm-hmm. like, no, I'm not the prophet. They're mm-hmm. all anticipating that the prophet was, in fact, the Messiah yep. of, uh, of some kind. Um, but what's really interesting here, too, is is what uh, the false pro- what identifies a false prophet is speaking presumptuously. Because that's a, that's a subtlety that I think we can often overlook when we're just like, oh, you know, when you see on, on YouTube, people say, oh, I had a dream. I'm not a prophet or anything, but this is from God. It's like, okay, well, we're, we're treading into prophecy territory. If it's going to be of God, if it's from God. Yeah. If you're claiming that it's from God, you can't then, out of the other side of your mouth, go, but this might not be from God, but it is from yeah, God. It's a, I'm but not it might a prophet, not be a prophecy, and you're like, this okay. Is from God. Yeah, it does, it <laughs> that's trying fly. to play both angles. Th- that's right. So it doesn't really work. So it's like you have here is that speaking presumptuously is either for self-gain or some sort of advantage mm-hmm. in the culture of society. Uh, it's a platform for their own opinion, mm-hmm. or worse off, this is a little bit more sits to home, which is what Jeremiah and the other prophets talk about, is that they they thought they were speaking from God, but it was really their own imagination or ideas. Yeah, and that's that is hidden close to home for what we see going on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it was speaking presumptuously, thinking that you're actually speaking on God's behalf, but you're just speaking for yourself. And it's a very concerning issue. Yeah, that we like we need to be careful. With this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I would never. (laughs) We need to be really careful. Yeah. What we claim is the voice of God. That's right. And then I think this is part of what it means to be double-minded is uh, to be very confused on this too. Self-deception is definitely a dangerous thing to be in. But anyways, that's my two cents. Yeah. Prophecy is real. The gift of prophecy is real, but it requires discernment and everyone else being really careful. That's right. And not just jumping on every bandwagon. Oh yeah. And I would not want it like. If you're going to make a prophecy, like, you have to know it's from God. Mm -hmm. Just to be like, you know, God would support me in this if I say this. It's like, well, okay. No, it's just like it doesn't work that way. It's It's, dangerous. It's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's happened. It's pretty much rampant right now. So you're – and these people were killed. This wasn't – like, speaking presumptuously on God's behalf, people were killed. Mm -hmm. That is a very dangerous – so you can can think about the severity of that because you're pretty much defaming God's character – for yourself. And we're still accountable before God. 
yeah. we will be judged. Even even Christians, we will be judged before God on how we live our lives yeah. and what we say and the idle words that we say and the helpful words that we say. So we need to be careful. It's not a game. No. It's not a joke. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not a game. Yeah. We have to be careful. All right. All right. I think we've already done that enough. Deuteronomy <laughs> chapter 19. Okay. So I just want to put a note in here. Uh, there's a theme found throughout the book of Deuteronomy that we see here in Deuteronomy 19. Again, it's this idea that the land of Israel was a special place dedicated to God, just like Israel. So the people themselves are dedicated to God, but so is the land. And we can see this concept reflected in the inheritance laws of Israel. So the inheritance laws of Israel were aimed at preserving the tribal allotments that the different tribes of Israel got. Um, And then the religiously intolerant laws, so only allowing the true worship of God to flourish in the land, um, and and also in the the laws regarding murder. All of this is reflected, you know, the fact that the land was also to be set aside for God. So there's a main concern uh, in, in the murder laws that that blood human blood being spilled on the land is sin in that it pollutes the it pollutes the land itself human blood so we see this also in numbers chapter 35 um uh and then for the inheritance laws in terms of boundaries we see in verse 14, it says, don't move your neighbor's boundary zone. In other words, preserve what God has given and to whom God has given it. So God is an authority over what tribal allotments mm-hmm. you had. Um, and remember, this is a small territory of land. Israel's not this massive, massive country. So it was important to keep that those, those rules there. Mm-hmm. Um, we learn also in verses 15 to 21 that witnesses were absolutely necessary to establish a crime. So there needed to be evidence. And also we're told what Israel was supposed to do with a false witness, someone who lied about witnessing a crime. And that was to give the false witness the punishment that would have been given to the person they were lying about. So if you if you falsely accuse someone of murder, you would be treated like a murderer. So you would be executed. Um, brutal, but it was meant to be a deterrent yes. against being a false witness, which That's was right. brutal. And it should deter you if, if you... Yes, it should. (laughs) Yes, it should. Same bone in your body. Okay. And also, uh, this is where Deuteronomy chapter 19 is where we get the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Um, And this law was about dissuading people from evil. So making sure that only a just punishment is given out, not more. So it's not like, um, like I'm going to murder you for, for taking my eye or I'm going to murder you for pulling out my tooth. No, 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 no. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's Mm -hmm. not... Um, it's it's about upholding justice rather than going beyond yes. what is just. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 20. Uh, this There's this really nice sentiment in here for the Israelites. When you go into battle, don't be afraid because God is going with you. Uh, and then the priest is also going to go into battle with you. And, and he's going to tell you this before battle. He's going to remind you of this. Now, remember, again, for Israel, there were conditions on their battles. Uh, there's conditions for God going with them into battle. It's not just like they could be evil and go into, like, not listen to God's law and go into battle and be fine. We're about to see 
that 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 happened a few times and God did not go with them. But it was if they were right with God, God was going with them. If they were going into a just war, God was going with them. But he was he wouldn't be with them if they were going uh, in the wrong context. Mm -hmm. There were exemptions in Israel for military service, some really interesting ones, um, some based off of blessings. So if if a man had just built a house or planted a vineyard or was pledged to be married, he was exempt from going into warfare so that he could enjoy the blessings of the promised land. Mm. Um, also, if a man was afraid of going into warfare, he didn't have to go and fight, um, essentially this also would have protected the military from fear. Yeah. Right? Um, we learn about normal warfare, about how the Israelites would offer a peace treaty to the people before they would destroy the city. Uh, you know, if, if they accepted the peace treaty, they wouldn't destroy the city. If they didn't accept the peace treaty, they would destroy the city. There's what to do in wartime, regular wartime versus what to do in the conquest of Israel, all of those laws are in here. An interesting one is that they're told not to destroy the fruit trees of an area, which was a common ancient tactic to go in and destroy the sources of food for the land. And God's like, nope, like be more long-sighted than that. Right. Don't destroy the food supply. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 21. Um, there's this ritual done to absolve the land of the guilt of bloodshed in the case of an unsolved murder. So what do we do if a murder has happened, but there are no witnesses? How do we cleanse the land? And this is the answer to that. Um, there's rules about marrying captive women. So young women who hadn't been married yet. Um, and they were to be given a special period of mourning for their people and for their families. And then they were to embrace their new life. Symbolically, what they would do then to embrace this new life, they would shave their hair, cut their nails, they would bathe themselves, and then they would be given a new set of clothing. Then if these women were married into Israel, they were married as a wife. They were never to be sold or traded, even if... Uh, the husband divorced them. Right. The Israelite husband divorced them. So they received legal protection. Interesting. There's a yes. couple other things here too. Sure. Verses 18 to 21. What's really interesting here is that as a sign of someone who's rebellious and unrepenting, yes. there was four qualifications, undisciplined, stubborn, gluttonous, and drunkard. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm assuming these aren't all in tandem because it's gluttonous and drunkard, you kind of you mix the two together. But um, undisciplined, stubborn, and gluttonous as the three things for being rebellious and unrepenting, and that was punishable by death. That is like the cool guy today. Yeah. <laughs> That's like in every like high school like movie. The, like the classic college kid or something. Yeah, exactly right. It's like the complete opposite of like what we would imagine as uh, what would be going on here. Anyway, just, I just thought it was really interesting that that was the case. It's so different, radically different than how we view, you know, what's stand up and right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we don't live in a culture of honor and shame. No. There are still a few cultures in the East that that have that honor and shame principle still left. But ancient Israel was an honor and shame culture. So your family alliance, your your family, you the idea of you representing your family and your behavior either bringing honor or bringing shame to your family was a very big deal. Mm. We are more individualized as a, as a society yeah. where they were more group oriented and family oriented. So. It, it's very culturally different, isn't it? Yeah. When you look at it, uh, and some of the things we think aren't such a big deal, but 
they were they and were they huge. are yeah right and they are yeah, you're everyone's responsibility in a sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um also too here verses 22 to 23 right mm-hmm. after starts talking about a hangman on uh, uh, is cursed who hangs on a tree right man is cursed who hangs on a tree mm-hmm. and that as we know is like in the new testament ends up becoming uh a, a christian a christ himself uh, I guess Christian foreshadowing, you can say, mm-hmm. because Christ himself was hanging on a tree and yeah. the disciples all used this because he was cursed and he died, but then he rose again and was vindicated. Mm-hmm. The irony here, I think, is that if you, when you get into Joshua, especially Joshua 10, you'll notice that they, when they take over a city and they hang their king on a tree. And the irony here is obviously they take it down and they do the practice as it says in the law. Yeah. The irony here is that Christ grafted in the Gentiles, was hung on a tree, but then Christ rose from the dead and vindicated him. You have this little Mm -hmm. bit of irony here Mm -hmm. of this like Gentile um, uh, uh, Israel looking at these uh, kings as like they were evil, but in the sense of Christ. uh, They're cursed because God's not with them and God's allowing them to be defeated. They spoke presumptuously on this, but then God vindicated them. So a little bit of irony there that I thought was really interesting. But yeah. Yeah, it is. There's a lot of random and interesting laws in chapter 21. And it's the same with chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22. There's more laws. Um, Some of these have to do with uh, our attitudes or Israel's attitudes towards animals. So they were to help a missing animal. They were to help, you know, find a missing animal or if they saw an animal with no owner in the wrong area and it was in danger, they were to help it. Uh, Basically, if you see it, help it. Uh, also there's these categories, this idea that Israel was to keep categories distinct and separate. So men and women, their clothing was supposed to be distinct. Um, seeds in their vineyard were supposed to be distinct, separate sections for separate plants. Um, plowing, they were supposed to plow with one kind of animal. So it's just like their clothing had wasn't supposed to be mixed together, like different kinds of material. Keep things as they are. Don't mix them. So categories and boundaries in Israel were supposed to be upheld. Um, we also, there's there's laws about what to do about certain marriage violations. So things like divorce or extramarital sexual relationships, rape. Um, and we have to remember when we're looking at those laws specifically, this was a time and a culture in which marriage was a societal obligation. So not like today in the West where marriage is about love or lust or romance. Uh, Rather, in this time period, it was a business contract. It joined your family with another family, but it also came, what came with it was land and inheritance. And that was all tied up into the larger fabric of the society of Israel. Uh, so ultimately a lot of these rules are what happens then when it becomes about lust, for example, in the case of rape and the punishments really interesting. When you look at the punishments, they seem to bring it back to marriage being about the society within Israel. And that's just because of their land structure and the way that they were organized. Mm -hmm. Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 23 things that would exclude you from being considered a part of Israel. So a lot of these were things they should not practice, things like castration and um, engaging in forbidden marriages and things like that. Um, Also being an Ammonite or a Moabite because of how these people groups treated Israel in the wilderness. 
But we also know that this wasn't upheld in the way we might think because we know that Ruth was a Moabite and she was the grandmother of King David, who most definitely was considered a part of Israel. But this also may be just an interesting note. I know I'm kind of branching off. Um, This also may explain the reason why the book of Ruth exists, because it's, it's possible that David's legitimacy as an Israelite was questioned because of the ethnicity of his grandmother. Right. So then her story was told kind of in order to justify right. why she was truly Israelite. Yes. Right. Very <laughs> yeah. Cool. So interesting stuff there. Okay. Um, we're going to skip down to Deuteronomy chapter 24. The various laws continued. Uh, divorce should be seen as final in ancient Israel. And this really would dissuade people from doing it. Once you divorce, you're done. You can't, you can't remarry that same person. Um, we are also, there's a bunch of laws that look to the benefit of the other person. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, don't take pledges, which would be like valuable things. Uh, Don't don't take valuable things for loans. So things like a millstone that people need to grind their grain so they can eat. Or don't take their cloak from them until they pay you back because then they're going to go cold. So don't be looking out just for your bottom line. Look out for people. Deuteronomy chapter 25, this continues on into the inheritance laws. Inheritance was extremely important, like we've talked about a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, There's something called the family of the unsandaled man that's talked about in this chapter. And essentially, the unsandaled man meant the man who refused to take his dead brother's widow, who didn't have children, Mm -hmm. as a wife and provide her with a child for the dead brother's name right? so that he could still inherit. right? So his children would still inherit. Right. It's kind of complicated, yeah. but that's that's the way it is. There's, and it, again, it's a big deal because it messes with the inheritance of family territory. Right, and you were speaking of Ruth earlier. Now that principle, that cultural yes. practice, ends up being a, becoming really important in the book of Ruth too. It does. Yeah, yeah we see a transaction between Boaz and a closer family relative of Ruth's dead husband who should have redeemed her. He doesn't want to redeem her. Right. doesn't want to take her on as a wife to give her a child that would take inheritance. Yeah. But Boaz will. Right. And there's a sandal exchange. So just remember Deuteronomy <laughs> 25 when you're reading Ruth 4. Yeah. Yes. Right. There's also a very bizarre incident here where it's a similar issue in reverse. I get a lot of questions about it. It's Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 11 to 12, where if a woman tries to cut off the availability of a man to have children, she gets her hand cut off. So basically she tries to like castrate castrate him herself, um, trying to destroy the privates of a man her husband is fighting, in other words. So this is all, like, this chapter is all about inheritance. Inheritance was so important right. to ancient Israel. Okay. Chapter 26. <laughs> moving right along. Yeah. Uh, this is, again, about the first fruit tithe. So you tithe. They would give of their the produce of their fields, the crops of their fields, to thank God for fulfilling his promise to Abraham. And then every third year, all of that tithe would go to the disadvantaged in Israel so that they would have a store of food and not go hungry. 
Deuteronomy chapter 27, this is where they're told to build an altar on Mount Ebal, to set up two large stones, cover them with plaster, write the words of the law of God on them, and then have a covenant ceremony on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. These mountains flanked the ancient city of Shechem. Shechem is kind of like in the middle in front of them, and they're up here. Uh, and then in chapter 28, they're to read the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience during this covenant ceremony. Right. And I think it's important here, too, because when you read the curses of obedience, sorry, the curses for disobedience. And the, yeah, cur- <laughs> Whoa, let's not switch that around. For, yeah, <laughs> the curses for disobedience and the uh, blessings for obedience. It can, some people, I think it's a very naturalistic culture, right? Mm-hmm. So some people kind of see it as like, God's strong-arming them because he's oh, like, right. listen. He's a bully now. He's a bully because yeah. like, if you don't do what I say, like I'm going to do all these things to you. Right. So they kind of have no choice in the matter. That's not what's happening here. Like, no. and Because you have to look at it like who is God and what's his nature. God is the basis and the essence of life, goodness, morality, justice, love. And like all mm-hmm. the things that we value that we know that are good, God's the essence of that. He is, that, the, the, right? he is mm-hmm. those things, the foundation of it. So when you reject God, the foundation of all those things, you're desiring evil. You're rejecting goodness and you want evil. So the natural consequences of that are going to be judgment. Mm -hmm. So because God, right, has revealed himself to Israel, this isn't like, oh, we don't know who God is, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, they've already agreed to this a few times already. That's right. Yeah, they didn't have to. That's right. So this isn't like, you know, one weaker nation being strong-armed or or threatened Mm -hmm. by... stronger nation can't look at it in human terms this is specifically god the essence of goodness right if you Mm -hmm. reject him these this is what's going to happen right right and i i think that makes a lot of sense if you're going to go against goodness it's like what else do you have to go for um but also what's important here too is that you learn later on in deuteronomy uh, 30 that at any point even if they start disobeying they can repent. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, there's yeah. nothing you can do. We're cursed forever. It's like not like some sort of a pagan idea of what curses are. Yeah. At any point, you can repent and God will restore you. Yeah. And that's like foundational to everything. Mm-hmm. But anyways, that's my two cents there. All right. So let's let's jump down then to Deuteronomy chapter 29 in 30. So then after Moses describes for them the covenant renewal ceremony that they will have once they're in the promised land on right. Mount Ebal and Gerizim, then Moses hosts a renewal covenant with the Israelites before they enter the promised land. So this is chapter 29 and 30. And then in chapter 30, you're right, there is this really interesting uh, promise that when when Israel falls away and the curses come on them, when they return to God in their hearts, so in reality, in their actual lives, then God would bring them back to the promised land and change their hearts towards God so that they'll truly love him. Right. So what you have here is uh, the Shema again, where mm-hmm. when, when uh, Moses said, brothers, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Yes. Uh, when he says that, and that's repeated. Now, when Moses says that, the, we know that God's also prophesying that they're not going to do that. But he says, one day you will. And here in verse 6 in Deuteronomy 30, he says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, yeah. so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, that you may live. Yeah. So it's like what you have here is that like you have uh, Moses saying, do this, circumcise your heart. Majority of them don't. And then God says, but I will one day. And that's this whole messianic idea that kind of gets built up and then starting here. But yeah, very interesting. 
Uh, there's a lot very, more you can talk about. I know. There's is, so much. Let's keep going. There's lots of Deuteronomy stuff. Deuteronomy is just full of it. Like I, I every time, paragraph, I'm like, let's talk about this. I know. So I'm really reining myself in. So I, <laughs> so Good yeah. job. Okay. Deuteronomy <laughs> chapter 31, Joshua receives the leadership of Israel from Moses officially after this covenant ceremony. So then um, God tells Moses and Joshua about the future rebellion of Israel. And then God tells Moses to write a song and teach it to the people so that this song will be passed down and it will be a witness to Israel of what has happened to them. So then Deuteronomy chapter 32 records the song of Moses, which is this history of God's mercy and the rebellion of the people. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses blesses Israel and the 12 tribes. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 34, Moses dies on Mount Nebo at, a, at the age of 120. And then, of course, there's those final words of Deuteronomy chapter 34. And everyone's like, he couldn't have written that. You're right. They are probably put in later. You're right. Uh, you're right. Um, there's words there that uh, no one in Israel had attained what Moses had attained, but there's an expectancy that one day a prophet will arise like Moses. Right. Which explains again in the New Testament when they ask John the Baptist and Jesus, are yeah. you Moses? Are you the prophet? That's right. Are you Elijah? Okay, Joshua. We're just going to do the first eight chapters of Joshua really quick, and then we'll We'll be done with this sure. with this recap this week. So Joshua chapter one, we see Joshua receiving his orders from God. Uh, mainly, there's there's three things that God really pushes home for Joshua. God will be with him. He needs to be strong and courageous, and he needs to know and follow the law. He's told to meditate on it daily. Uh, and then Joshua gets the people ready to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land must have been very scary, especially for God to have to say, be strong and courageous. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Okay, Joshua chapter two. Joshua sends two spies ahead into the city of Jericho. And then we get this story of Rahab the prostitute who decides to ally herself with Israel for her own and her family's safety. And the result is the, is the report to Joshua that the land is actually afraid yeah. of Israel. So it's like, it's a confirmation for Joshua, right. but it also saves Rahab and her entire family. And this, just to make a note here, last week you were talking about how it's not racial. This is another example. If it was like a racial ethnic cleansing thing, mm -hmm. you wouldn't just save people who are on your side. It's not how that works. No, no. no. So once again, people could choose to ally themselves. That's for sure. right. All right. Okay, Joshua chapter 3, Israel crosses the Jordan River, and there's um, the miracle of the Jordan River drying up to allow the Israelites to cross over on dry land. Mm -hmm. And Joshua told the Israelites in advance that it would happen. So in their minds, this verifies that the Spirit of God is with Joshua as it was with Moses. So, I mean, it's a lesser miracle than the Red Sea crossing because it's not a whole sea and it's not right. as dramatic because there's not an army following them, <laughs> but it still verifies for them that their leader is the one that God has chosen. Right. All right. Joshua chapter four, they set up a 12 stone memorial to commemorate the Jordan River crossing uh, at, at Gilgal which is near the eastern border of Jericho. They say it's near the eastern right. border of Jericho. Uh, and then when the priests leave the riverbed, the water of the Jordan begins to flow back. So the timing is perfect. In Joshua chapter 5, the Israelites conduct a, a circumcision of all the fighting men 
at, at Gilgal, at their camp. Um, and then they celebrate Passover and they eat bread and grain that they got from that area. And that's when the manna stops. So they eat of the produce of the land right. and the manna in the wilderness that God had been providing for them stops. And there's a short record here of Joshua meeting the commander of the Lord's army. And again, this reemphasizes that it's God who's doing this judgment, mm -hmm. not the Israelites. The Israelites are taking part in the judgment of God, but it's right. ultimately God's judgment. That's right. And this is, you finally, when you see the angel of the Lord in human form, people, a lot of theologian scholars, this is recognized as the pre-incarnate Christ. Yeah. And it's because, and it's, there's no way to kind of get around this. You have this angel of the Lord accepts worship in human form. Mm -hmm. And once you accept worship, like if you read throughout the Bible, all angels decline worship, especially in Revelation 19, 21, don't worship me, right? When John falls on his face. So everyone declines worship, but this angel accepts it. And so everyone, and when you start reading, that's why during, uh, when it built up to about the second temple period, they started recognizing that, uh, that there were these two quote unquote Yahwehs, but they were one and they didn't know how to reconcile it. So they had this two Yahweh theology built into their framework, uh, early Israel. And it wasn't until after Christ was from the dead, it was so similar to this idea that once the 180 AD that they said it was that their own theology was heresy because mm -hmm. uh, they couldn't because they needed to keep you know Israel Orthodox and what they believed uh, what was genuine. Yeah, separate from Christianity. That's right, yeah. distinct from Christianity. Yeah. So what's really interesting about that is that like the angel of the Lord comes here, comes in later on with Gideon, it comes in other forms as well. Uh, but it's like you can't escape the fact that pre-incarnate Christ is throughout the text. Anyway, there's more need to be said here, but that's fun. <laughs> fun stuff. It is very fun stuff. Okay, Joshua chapter 6. This is the famous battle of Jericho. Jericho is taken in a very strange way by marching around the city for six days. On the seventh day, they march around it seven times and shout and blow the trumpets and the walls collapse. And they go inside and destroy everything except for Rahab and her family. Rahab is taken back to the camp of Israel and she has to stay. Her and her family have to stay outside the camp of Israel. They're going to go through that mourning period that we talked about uh, earlier in, in Deuteronomy. Um, and eventually Rahab is integrated into Israel. She's going to show up in a very important family tree later on. Um, and Jericho was offered up essentially as a burnt offering to God. And we, and we know this because Joshua pronounces a curse on anyone who would rebuild it. It was to remain destitute forever. Now, a later city was rebuilt, but it was not supposed to be rebuilt. Um, Joshua chapter 7, oh man, this is about the failure of the Israelites at the uh, the outpost or the small city of Ai. A lot of people call this Ai. Archaeologists call it Ai, so that's what I do, but yeah. <laughs> Ai, Ai, it's all the same. <laughs> um, we learn that Achan, a man named Achan in Israel had kept had kept plunder mm -hmm. from Jericho, even though Joshua had declared it God's. Right. Um, and so the Israelite army isn't clean, but they don't know this. So they go to Ai, which is such a small outpost, and they don't even send all of their men because they're like, there's no need. We just defeated Jericho. This is just a small outpost. Right. And they get beaten so bad. And they lose about 36 men. Um, and the rule that that the Israelites had previously agreed to was that if you took a thing that was devoted to destruction, you became like that thing. Yes. You became devoted to destruction. So the whole nation had lost its protection from God. The whole nation had become devoted to destruction. So 
when Aiken is found out, he is destroyed. Right. He is judged. He is judged for that. And the last chapter, Joshua chapter 8, I is finally destroyed this time, and plunder is allowed to be kept by the Israelites from I. Uh, then the Israelites go to Shechem, to that Mount Ebal in Gerizim, and they renew the covenant. And that That's it. is the end of Joshua chapter 8. <laughs> Anything else that you want to add before we no, say goodbye? No, I, I was going to ask you to know if you knew, had any archaeological evidence of Jericho. Oh, yes. So I know I know this, you can find it, but what do you? What do you have in mind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, there's a lot, and there's a big scholarly battle over Jericho and over the dating of Jericho. Um, Dr. Bryant Wood is an archaeologist uh, currently. He works for the Associates for Biblical Research, um, and there he's written a lot of articles on Jericho. So I would encourage you to look up the Associates for Biblical Research and go read some of his articles on it. Basically, um, there's a big question over, everyone knows that Jericho fell, mm-hmm. but when did it fall? Did it fall at a time period when the Bible says it fell or did it fall much later or did it fall much earlier? Right. So timing is everything right. <laughs> with this, but we know that it did fall. And there's even one section of the wall that didn't fall. And the Bible tells us that Rahab's house was in the wall right. and it didn't fall. Right. It's really interesting. But, yeah. the, but like even the way that the walls fell it's been proven that the the, the top um, mud brick walls, because it had two walls, a casemate wall, so one on the bottom of the city and one at the top of the city, and then right. there was a steep slope, that these walls fell outward and created a ramp, essentially, for, for the, in. yeah. This is the opposite of what you get from a siege. You don't have walls falling out from the, no. from the opposing army. So no, it sounds no, like, no. to me, it's the biblical accurate. It's just... Biblical account is the most accurate. Mm-hmm. And then people are just looking mm-hmm. for other, other ways around it. Yeah. So then, so then, like, if it happened the way the Bible says it happened, then when did it happen? Right. Did it happen when the Bible says it happened? So I would and say yes. And there's I, also and I think scorching there's good... too, right? Like the, oh, yeah. yeah. So everything was burned up like they yeah. said it was, right? So yeah. all the data points to something remarkably similar to what the Bible remarkably said. Similar. Remarkably similar. Yeah, yeah. So strange. Yeah. Anyways, that's anyway. cool. Yeah, look it up if you're interested. Obviously, there's a whole lot more information out there on it. But again, I would go check out Associates for Biblical Research. Okay, if you have any comments or questions, pop them in the uh, comments below the video and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. I hope you're having a good one. See ya. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.